Before I get to our text this morning, we can give you a little bit of the background that kind of gives a better feel for setting the stage of the text that I'm about to read. Earlier in Mark's Gospel, we read these mystifying words that are found in, in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. There it says, then he went home, talking about Jesus, and, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Just pause with that thought of, you ever feel like your family doesn't appreciate you? Ever get the feeling that your, your family doesn't understand you? Well, welcome to the club. Because Jesus, his own family, didn't appreciate or understand who he was and what he had to do. It says that his family thought that he was out of his mind. Now, after his death and after his resurrection, Jesus' mother and, and his brothers were very active in the leadership of the church. But when Jesus began his ministry, they were not what we would term supportive in, in what he was doing. And I think this fact may resonate with a few of you this morning. Because maybe you don't feel very appreciated. Maybe you don't feel very supported in your own life. Maybe that's at home. Maybe it's at home you don't feel like you're being treated with much respect. Perhaps it's at school where you don't feel like you're valued or appreciated. Maybe it's at your place of work. Maybe it's even here at church where you see someone else or some other ministry seems to get all the attention but, but you don't feel like you and your ministry get any of the attention. I mean, it, it happens. And so maybe you can identify with that feeling of not being appreciated or fully supported in the way that you would desire. And so we find that his family thinks that he's crazy in Mark chapter 3. And then you get to Mark chapter 5. There you see a beautiful story of Jesus healing a man that was possessed by demons. And ultimately, the response from the people was that they had a desire for Jesus to get out of there. They, they wanted him to leave. They pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. They were more concerned over the financial loss of losing 2,000 pigs who went off a cliff than they were uh, excited over celebrating the deliverance and the salvation of one individual. And then later in chapter 5, Jesus leaves with the man Jairus to, to help his sick daughter. And on their way to, to the home, they receive word that the daughter has died. And the text says in chapter 5, verse number 36, that Jesus ignored what they said and told Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. And so they, they continued their journey and they arrived at the house and when they get there, they see and they hear all of the crying, all of the wailing. And Jesus says these words. He says, why all the crying and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And we're told at this point, they laughed at him. They laughed at him. So in, in a few short chapters, from chapter 3 to chapter 5, we find that Jesus' family is concerned. They think that he's lost his mind. We see that there's a whole community that beg him to leave. 
And we see that he's laughed at. And then we get to chapter 6, and that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Chapter 6, Jesus returns to his hometown. And today we're going to look at the reception that he received from the very people that knew him best. And so let's look at the beginning of verse number 1. It says, He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get all these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Father, help us this morning. Help us to see and to hear clearly your word spoken to our hearts. Father, as we receive your word into our lives, may it bring about conviction in and through us, Father, so that we would make the appropriate decision today that would give you the full glory that you're due. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. And so, when we begin to to look at this passage of Scripture and we begin to kind of break it down, we can see the contempt that the people had for Jesus. It says right there in verse number 2, we see that the people were astonished at his teaching. Now, that that phrase, were astonished, means uh, to wonder. It means to marvel, to be surprised, or, or to be amazed. Now, at first, it might seem in and of itself nothing out of the ordinary. It might seem as though it's a compliment, but it's not. Now, other places, when you see people's response of being astonished or amazed at Jesus, it is in a positive example. But here, it's a negative example. Now, a positive would be found in John chapter 7, verse number 46. In John chapter 7, you'll find that the temple guards, they went to go and seize Jesus. And and they went and they listened to him teach in in the synagogue. And and they were so impressed by who he was and what he said that they didn't arrest him or anything. And when they gave a report, they said, no one ever spoke the way that this man does. So there they were amazed and astonished by his teaching and a positive example And you can be sure that those guards had heard a lot of teaching and teachers. They've seen and they'd heard the best and the brightest of the speakers that were on circuit in those days. And when they heard Jesus, they were astonished at what he had to say and the power and the influence of his words. But here in Mark chapter 6, when it says that they were astonished or depending on your translation, uh, they were amazed. It's not spoken of in the same manner as the temple guards. They're not in wonder. They're They're not like impressed in the positive sense. 
No, what they are, they're in shocked disbelief. They're offended. I want you to notice that they don't question the words of Jesus. They don't question his wisdom. Nor do they question his works. What they question is the source. What they question is the authority that Jesus had. And they're not just puzzled, scratching their heads, wondering, hmm, that's weird. No, they're ticked off. They're highly offended. Not because he wasn't right, but because they didn't trust his authority. And so uh, they begin to engage with questions, talking about, hey, isn't this, you know, Mary's child, his brothers, aren't they here uh, among us? And so they begin to question the very authority of Jesus. Because for them, Jesus didn't have the right credentials. Jesus didn't possess uh, the right education. He was a carpenter. Now his wisdom couldn't be denied. But they couldn't understand from where or from whom he had received that wisdom. And so he didn't have the right credentials. He didn't have the right education. And then Jesus was uh, from human and humble beginnings. He was a mere working man. A carpenter. Just an ordinary guy that was now speaking with such boldness and such wisdom. His family had no social or economic advantage. I hope you can understand that there is nothing wrong or inappropriate about asking questions. Asking questions can be a very good and positive thing to do. Asking questions can ultimately lead to faith if you're asking questions with a pure heart, with the right motive. If you're asking questions, you know, out of a genuine sincerity to know and to discover the truth. So questions can be good. Questions like, who is Jesus? Is he God or is he just some good teacher? What is his authority or what is his wisdom? Is he just another human philosopher or is he speaking divine truth? See, questions can be good if there's a true desire to discover the truth. But here in our text, their familiarity with Jesus bred contempt. And because it bred contempt, they could not obtain for themselves the correct answers to their questions. You see, their preconceived idea of Jesus served as a stumbling block for them. See, for them, what Jesus was doing was scandalous. It was offensive. But, but again, they're not offended at what he said. They weren't offended at what he did. They were offended at who he was. They just couldn't accept it. With that in mind, let's pause to consider. Are there any areas to place yourself under the authority of our Lord and Savior? Jesus puts it this way in verse number 4. He says, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. You know, understand that there was a powerful consequence to their refusal to recognize the authority of Jesus. As a result, it's going to mess some of you up, so let me just prep, prep you. As a result of their unbelief, 
they were actually able to lock up the power of God. The gospel says that Jesus could do no mighty works there. Notice it doesn't say that he didn't want to. No, it says that he couldn't do any. When you think about this, it should grab our attention. Because the verse seems to suggest that there was something that Jesus wanted to do, but he couldn't do it. And that goes against the grain of what we know about Jesus. We know that he is God in the flesh. We know that through him, through his word, the the world and the universe was formed and spoken into creation. We know that he has the power over the universe. The one who spoke to the wind and it obeyed. The one who raised the dead was in their presence. Yet the Bible tells us that he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. Which means their unbelief, their questioning, their rumors and repulsion towards Jesus actually limited what could have been. Unbelief locks up the power of God. Unbelief limits what God is able to do in our midst. Let me be clear. God is no less powerful because of our unbelief, but the power of God is designed to be released as we trust God by faith. Before you get ready to vote me out in the business meeting after church on grounds of heresy or something, let's be a quick tenure. Let me tell you that this is exactly what we see in this scene from the text. They had everything that would be required in order for great things to happen. But they experienced very little. So before we move on, let's stop. Take a look at the picture. Let's see what's happening. Jesus was present with them. He went home. He's in his hometown among his own people. He was present. He was there. It was physical. It was literal. So they had the presence of God with them. Not only that, he had already done miracles in the past. Some of them we already talked about. So not only did they have the presence of God with them, they had the power of God available to them. And then thirdly, the text seems to suggest that Jesus wanted to do greater things, but he wasn't able to. So not only did they have the presence of God and the power of God, they had a plan of God, but the plan of God was limited because of their unbelief. And so we should note that unless the presence, the power, and the plan of God are with us, then nothing great is going to happen. We should also notice that it's impossible to have revival. It is impossible for us to see mighty works of God if the Lord is not present or if the Lord is not willing. But likewise, according to the text, it is possible for God to be both present and willing to do mighty things in and among us, and yet we still miss out on what could have been. 
when I read through this text, I get a sick feeling thinking about what could have been. What could be and could have been are very humbling concepts to me. Because I realize that if I'm not careful, I can miss out on what could have been in my life. Jesus was present with them. And like many others, some of us, they experience very little. But that is not what Jesus had intended. That is not what his greatest desire would have been. I believe that Jesus wanted to do greater things in his hometown. I personally believe that Jesus wanted to do the greatest of things in his hometown. You might say that he had a special place in his heart for his own people. And he wanted them to experience the greater things that only he could offer. While I'm fully convinced that Jesus can do anything without limit, I am made aware in this text that we can put limits on what he can do in our midst because of our unbelief. Make no mistake, I firmly believe in the sovereign power of God. There is no power anywhere that is greater than the power of God. Yet God has limited himself when he comes to what he will do in and through our lives. Here's the bottom line. The frightening reality is that we can stop God from doing mighty works in us if we refuse to live under his authority, if we refuse to recognize and to submit to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, what are you going to do with Jesus? Who is he to you? Is he just a great teacher? Or is it something greater than that? Is he Lord and Savior of your life? Will you submit and surrender all of your life unto him? We're told in this text, look, look, look back, chapter 6, notice what he says in, I'll start in verse number 5. He could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He was amazed. Jesus stood amazed at what he saw among his own hometown. He marveled at their lack of faith. We're told in two places in Scripture where Jesus had the response of being amazed or marveling at, at, at the faith of other people. We, we see one example here in, in Mark chapter 6, and we see it in the negative form, where, where he's amazed at their lack of faith. But let me show you a positive example if I can. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. So two references that we have of Jesus being amazed at someone or a group of people. First one, Mark chapter 6. The second one is here in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in um, verse number 1. From verse 1 through verse 
10. That's a good stopping point. And it says, after he had finished all his sayings and hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, here we go, he marveled at him. Same word, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, saying, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus marveled at the faith of the man. He stood amazed. He said, not, I've, I've not seen such faith displayed among anyone else. So we have two examples, a positive and a negative. Let me just kind of push you with this thought a little bit. When our Lord looks down upon us right here, right now, does He stand amazed because of the great faith that He sees displayed in and through us? Or is He amazed at the unbelief that's being demonstrated in our lives? Amazed. Amazed at what? Great faith? Or unbelief. I am fully convinced that God is powerful. God desires for this community to know and to experience His glory. But we have to put ourselves in submission into the authority of our Lord. Will you submit? your whole life unto Him. For some of you, you need to make a declaration of faith today. You need to say, I'm in. I recognize my sin. I know I need help. I trust in Jesus for the salvation of my soul. For those that are believers, you need to make a declaration of full-time commitment unto Him. Giving Him the Lordship over all of your life. Some of you, if I can just be honest with you, some of you, the reason why God feels distant to you could be linked back to the fact that perhaps you haven't been obedient to Him in certain things. We had one baptism already. You realize that if you're a child of God, that is His command, that is His expectation that you publicly declare in front of others through the great symbol of baptism, your faith in Him? That's the first act of obedience. 
And if you're not willing to be obedient to the first thing that he calls us to, no wonder God feels distant in your life. Because you're living in disobedience. Some of you need to be baptized. And baptism happens after a confession of faith is made. Okay? So if you did that, then you got baptized before, and then you made a public profession of faith, and you experienced salvation later, then you need to be baptized again because you were never baptized in the first place. You just got wet. And that's okay. It happens. It happened to me. I got wet, and then I was baptized. Anybody else, that's your experience too? Yeah. Sure. But what is God calling you to do with your life? And I think sometimes we wait to, to follow God and we say, all right, God, give me, give me the big picture. Help me to see it all. And he doesn't work that way. He gives us one step at a time. And we're not going to know what's going to happen next until we've been faithful and obedient to what he's already called us to do. So walk in obedience. Declare your faith and trust in him. And let's join together. Let's serve one another, love one another, forgive one another, help one another, so God can be glorified in all that we do. You guys are like, is he really done? (laughs) I'm used to like one more story, right? (laughs) That's funny. I am done. No more stories. I already love you guys. And I'm already so filled with just gratitude to be here with you. I'm anxious to see what's next. But what's next for the service is a very serious time. It's a time of invitation. We're going to say a prayer. We're going to sing to a song. We'll be down here at the front. Others will be down here too. We want to pray with you. We want to talk with you. We want to encourage you in any way that we can. I want to challenge you to pray where you are right now and just ask God, God, what's the one thing that you want me to do for you right now? Is it a sin to confess? Is it a commitment to make? God, what's the one thing? So that when we leave here, we can leave here differently than the way that we came. Let's pray together, church. Father, Thank you. Thank you for who you are, what you're doing, and what you're going to do. Father, help us to live under the authority of our Savior. May he be Lord over all aspects of our lives. Father, there are some that are here today that need to make a confession of faith. God, I pray that your spirit will prompt them and that they'll declare their trust in you. Oh God, I know there's many people that are here. There are many that are struggling with sin right now. And we just need to confess. We need to repent. We need to receive the forgiveness that you extend unto us. God, in this time of invitation, I pray that you are so pleased by the response of your people. God, help us to glorify you with everything. To Christ in my prayer. Amen.